Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Over recent years in Australia, overall rates of methamphetamine use have declined. However, of those who use methamphetamine, ice is the most popular drug of choice. This week's podcast guest, Professor Dan Howard, was the Commissioner of the Special Commission of Inquiry into the Drug Ice and delivered his final report to the Governor and Premier of New South Wales in January 2020. A former President of the New South Wales Mental Health Review Tribunal and a former Acting Judge of the District Court of New South Wales, Dan is a Senior Counsel at the New South Wales Bar, a Visiting Professorial Fellow with the School of Law at the University of Wollongong and a Conjoint Associate Professor in the School of Psychiatry at the University of New South Wales. Dan is a former New South Wales Deputy Senior Crown Prosecutor. He is the co-author of textbook Crime and Mental Health Law in New South Wales, as well as the author of R.V. Malat, A Case Study in Cross-Examination. Tune in as Dan explains the range of health, social and criminal justice issues and responses made in the inquiry findings and the impacts it has made on individuals and communities in New South Wales. Hello listeners and thanks for joining me for another episode and today it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Daniel Howard. Dan, thanks very much for joining us. Very nice to be with you, Sam. Hey, thanks. Uh, so much to talk about with regards to the, uh, especially regards to the special um, commission uh, into the inquiry on ICE that you were leading. But if we start with your, to give people a bit of context, what's your background and um, how did you come to be involved with the inquiry in the first place? Sure. Well, look, Sam, my background's uh, in the law. Um, I uh, have a, uh, a career of uh, having been a, a uh, a barrister in private practice and also a solicitor prior to that. Um, I uh, became a Crown Prosecutor, which um, exposed me very closely to the criminal law and how it works, uh, and I did that job for 15 years or so. Um, I uh, moved into some academic work and I uh, directed a uh, Master of Laws program at University of Wollongong for a few years. Um, and uh, I've also taught into a program at University of New South Wales, uh, which is a master's of forensic mental health degree, where I've been teaching psychiatry and the criminal law for many years. Um, and uh, in about 2012, I was asked to be president of the New South Wales Mental Health Review Tribunal. And I had been a member uh, of the tribunal for some years, um, and I uh, accepted that uh, role, which was very, very interesting. Um, and, uh, yeah, so basically after that, I've continued with a little bit of teaching. I've written a textbook with a forensic psychiatrist on um, crime and mental health law in New South Wales. So I've had an interesting, I guess, uh, mix of um, uh looking at mental health from, uh, I guess, the prosecution side or the criminal law side um, as an academic and also uh, through my work on the tribunal. And I I think that mix of um, uh, background was probably one of the reasons why I was approached to to head this uh, inquiry into uh, crystal methamphetamine and other amphetamine-type stimulants. Yeah, so that's in a nutshell. Yeah, no, it sounds like you've done a lot already uh, in your lifetime, and uh, and some really interesting things. Tell tell us, was mental health something that's always been something that 
you were naturally interested in or is it something you just sort of fell into? Because <laughs> obviously the law was your, your background and then to go yes. into mental health is unusual. So how did that work? Yes, well, I, look, I, whilst I was uh, still studying law, I, I married a very wonderful uh, lady who um, was studying medicine and uh, she ultimately decided to become a psychiatrist. So that, that sort oh, of okay. sparked a little bit of uh, intrigue and interest in that general area for me. But perhaps more uh, profoundly, I guess, um, I had a, an elder brother, a wonderful fellow who suffered very badly from bipolar okay. disorder. And um, uh, he, he's passed away now, but yeah. uh, I had very up close and personal kind of uh, experience with the difficulties that he went through with that illness, uh, yeah. both in navigating the, the mental health system uh, and, and just as a human being dealing with such a difficult illness, which he had uh, in quite a serious way. He had very high highs and very low lows with his um, bipolar disorder. Um, and uh, also whilst I was uh, uh, working as a prosecutor, I started finding I was <clears throat> getting more and more cases involving mental health issues. So uh. people who were uh, arguing that they were unfit for trial or people who um, raised the mental illness defense as a, a basis of defending a criminal charge. And um, it struck me at the time, and this is sort of back in the early 2000s, um, that there wasn't a lot of literature uh, by way of guidance to you know lawyers who wanted to work in that field. So, and that's how I got into yeah. uh, putting together this textbook with um, this uh, very uh, fine forensic psychiatrist named Bruce Westmore. Okay, well, that sounds really interesting. I, I mean, t tell us about that because people defending themselves uh, and using mental health or ill health as a reason um, for either doing something that was illegal or, or some criminal behaviour. Is that something, because we're seeing that obviously a bit more now as well, even high-profile people, um, yeah. whether it's drug use or something else that they're, they're, they're sort of turning to. How, what are your thoughts on that? And, and is it hard to determine if it was intentional and whether or not it was what, – what is your thoughts on that? Look, it's, it's a really interesting area, Sam. Uh, and I think um, the first part of your question, I think it's uh, – there's been in the last, I suppose, 15, maybe 20 years, a gradual heightening of public awareness of mental health issues. And, you know, that's been an absolutely magnificent, wonderful phenomenon that has improved yeah. um, our policies toward – people with mental illness um, and, and the resources uh, that uh, the system is, is applying to that issue. Um, and I think people are talking about it a lot more now than they did, you know, back when I started out in the law. Mm -hmm. um, and they understand it a lot better than they used to. Um, so I think uh, partly because of that, I think actually raising the mental uh, illness defense has become more common than it used to be. Um, look, it's still not always, but it's it's often still seen as kind of a last resort defense if you can't find some other way to defend a charge. Yeah. And if, if you've got evidence of a mental condition that uh, you can put before the court, then, you know, obviously that's something that the court should have regard to. Yes. Um, so I think more and more... Um, lawyers are perhaps feeling uh, more inclined to uh, use it because there's there's not as much stigma around raising mental health now as there used to be. And, you know, in the, in the bad old days, it was, as I say, very much a last resort that people didn't want to be seen to be or thought to be mentally ill. Um, but we've come a long way. And I must say that's that's been a trend that I've been very heartened by because the, the, the law itself, I think, has um, been improving, uh, you know, in line with that as well to accommodate um, mental illness more appropriately. Yeah. 
Mate, it's a wonderful thing anyway that reducing stigma around mental health and, and it's uh, great to see that happening anyway. If I go, yeah. if we go now to the inquiry um, that, mm. that you, were, you were leading, why was, why was crystal methamphetamine, why was that something that was a priority for New South Wales, New South Wales to have a commission into? Look, I think it was pretty clear that um, crystal methamphetamine had had become uh, probably the most problematic illicit drug. Um, people often point out that, of course, the uh, social and health consequences of alcohol are, you know, probably worst of all. But um, there have been studies done of the rankings of the relative harm caused to individuals and to society by different uh, drugs. And um, methamphetamine was second uh, only to alcohol. And, um, Is that right? So, yeah. In and surveys Wales. have also shown uh, recently that in terms of the public's concern um, uh, that uh, methamphetamine is the drug of most concern to um, the majority of Australians. Yeah, um, and okay. I think that's been driven by uh, the amount of uh, ice use that uh, ha has uh, come to be um, and uh, the perception of uh, the harms of ice that it can cause, uh, you know, to individuals who use it, but also to people who happen to be, um, uh, you know, victims of, of crime that might be uh, done by somebody who happens to be affected by ice. And I, I have to... Uh, say that um, the studies show that the vast majority of users um, don't uh, turn into the, you know, psychotic yeah. um, uh, emergency room destroying um, uh, individuals that uh, some advertisements uh, at some stage in the past on television were uh, suggesting were kind of the, the common uh, outcome. Um, that's, that's not the common outcome. Um, Many people use it, um, keep their use secret, and, and gradually, of course, uh, they may become addicted, which can lead to serious um, you know, mental health consequences, including uh, possible psychosis and you know, depression, and um, it, it can lead to all kinds of mental health problems. So, so there was a national, it, it, I mean, the, the problem's national. I guess it's it's around the world yeah. anyway. But if we look at just Australia, the problem is Australia-wide. Yes. And New yes. South Wales as a government said, let's really drill down and find out what's going on with this before it becomes yeah. too much of a problem. Is that right? Or becomes further? Yeah, look, that's right. Uh, I think it's fair to say that's right. Um, I, I think it was just a sense of the the, the, the growing need for some sort of approach. Um, I think when the Premier announced the inquiry, she made specific uh, mention of the fact that um, they needed to hear from experts. They needed yeah. um, uh, to find out uh, policies that would actually have an impact that were based on evidence and uh, expertise. So that was very much uh, the approach that uh, I took with this inquiry was to gather in as much expert evidence as I possibly could, both from uh, Australia and from overseas. And we looked at, um, uh, we heard evidence uh, from a lot of um, users and uh, people with lived experience and their families. Um, you know, we visited uh, uh, jail facilities. I spoke to uh, people who were in jail uh, for drug issues. Um, we uh, went to a number of the regions around New South Wales and had, um, you know, close-up hearings uh, in those areas as to what the problems were locally on the ground. Um, so I think, I think the government felt it needed a really solid understanding of the problem. And so we uh, threw everything we could at it. Um, I had a wonderful team of 30-odd uh, uh, researchers, policy officers, uh, a great legal team uh, working uh, for the inquiry. And, um, you know, so I was very well supported by uh, capable people who were able to pull this all together. Um, I might just say in terms of uh, ICE use in Australia, 
Now, there was an article in the Lancet uh, just last year um, which uh, makes it clear that Australia has the highest rate of dependency um, of, of any sort of region in the world um, in relation to uh, methamphetamine. Um, so that's, you know, another wow. reason why this sort of inquiry was was necessary. And we also have the highest uh, regional rate of all-cause deaths related to um, methamphetamine use. Um, wow. And the next, the next highest um, country is uh, middle class, uh, middle income, I should say, not middle class, middle income, North America. Um, which has about half of the rate that we do in terms of all-cause yeah, deaths right. uh, related to it. And why, why is that, do you think? Why is Australia more dependent on this drug than any other country? Yeah, look, that's a really interesting question, Sam, and I think it's multifactorial. I think for starters, um, we don't grow, you know, the opium poppy other than uh, I, I guess there are um, commercial um, enterprises in Tasmania that are legal um, and they provide uh, much of the world's uh, medicinal um, opium. Um, <clears throat> so that's a legitimate enterprise. But apart from that, we really don't grow uh, opium in Australia. We don't grow the coca plant. Uh, which, you know, gives the stimulant co cocaine. Um, so synthetic drugs, which is what um, ICE and MDMA, uh, amphetamine-type stimulants are, can be synthesised using chemicals um, in, a, you know, a home laboratory if, if, if you're that way inclined. So um, that's one of the reasons, I think, why uh, it's prevalent here. It's also prevalent here because... Uh, it's relatively cheap, um, and it's uh, and even though it's relatively cheap here, um, if it's imported by traffickers from America or from Southeast Asia, they can make substantial profits by uh, the increase in the sale price in Australia because the demand is here. We're willing to pay um, enough and they make substantial profit margins. So that, yeah. another reason I think why it is a problem here is because it's seen as a favourable market for, for traffickers from overseas. Mm. What, what's, what do you think is the underlying, and I guess this is, it's hard to probably pinpoint one or two things, but what's the underlying reason that people would be turning to use a drug like this in the first place? Because it's clearly yeah. trying to fill a problem or a need mm -hmm. or something that they're not getting from, from something else? Yeah, look, uh, really good question, Sam. And um, I heard lots of evidence from um, people with lived experience, um, you know, people who were still having problems with uh, addiction and people who had mastered and overcome uh, their addiction. I heard some wonderful recovery stories, which were just um, inspiring um, from, from witnesses. Um, uh, so, um, I think the causes from my experience on this inquiry and the evidence I heard, it, it, it didn't take much to scratch the surface of almost any person with lived experience. There was some form of trauma or disadvantage, um, you know, uh, which I ascertained fairly quickly, just, you know, not far below the surface. Um, it might take the form of uh, having been traumatized as a child, either through um, physical abuse or uh, sexual abuse. Yeah. Um, it might have been entrenched disadvantage from uh, consistent unemployment, poverty, homelessness, okay. All, um, all those drivers um, are uh, almost always present. Now, it's not to say that, yes, there are certainly people who just uh, are a bit reckless and want to try it for the thrill of it and see what it does, and you, you can't discount that as a, uh, another yeah. source of addiction. But um, by far the greater portion are people who have some 
disadvantage or trauma yeah. and men mental illness is another um, driver of course because there's a there is a link between um, sort of a two-way link really um, uh, as is well recognized with mental illness and drug drug use um, it it can deaden the the, diff, the pain and the difficulty of, of, of some mental illness conditions um, but of course it then, will very often aggravate those conditions yeah. and make them much harder to treat. Um, so, you know, there's so, that so it's like a, a quick fix sort of thing to escape reality. Yeah. Uh, and then, like you said, it further, it can further exacerbate the problem. Absolutely. It's, were you seeing, is it, so is, is this drug being used by everybody in like, I mean, I, you, you, it's not just people that are either, homeless or doing crime or, or in low socioeconomic areas or low income earners is it also is it rife among middle-aged professionals like i mean who's using the drug yeah look um it it, it doesn't target any class of individual it, it's um it's right across the spectrum of society um so you know there are people um in executive positions uh, and professions and you know it's as as well as people um, who are doing it tough, um, living on the street or whatever, um, and um, it it just doesn't know barriers of that kind. It's it's uh, it's highly addictive. Um, you know the 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 evidence shows that it's it gives you something like ten times a hit of dopamine that you would normally get if you were really feeling very, very happy for you know, wow. for some reason. Um, it 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 makes that a very high um, high. But the problem with that is that, um, as so often happens with drugs, is that you end up chasing that high and never achieving it again, because it. It, it basically mucks up your um, dopamine regulation in your brain and, and other neurotransmitters as well. Um, and uh, it, it reduces your natural ability to produce uh, uh, those neurotransmitters. So that's why people become very low. They, they don't okay. feel happy normally anymore. Yeah. Um, so they you know, look for the drug again, and and it's it's an awful um, it's an awful uh, fall Cycle. to yeah. lose your normal natural capacity to have happiness in a normal way. And are we still just starting to see the long term effects of this drug on people? Yes, I think that's true, um, and uh, they're still uh, doing you know ongoing research, but it does suggest that. Um, you know, there are permanent uh, changes in the brain and, and, and cognitive uh, issues. Um, crystal methamphetamine uh, is by far the most serious um, of the ATS type uh, drugs, the amph amphetamine type stimulant drugs. It's probably important to point out that um, uh, MDMA, commonly called ecstasy, whilst it also has um, a number of, you know, obviously very dangerous um, qualities, um, its overall uh, capacity for harm is considerably less than um, uh, ice. Um, okay. That's not to say MDMA is not without risks and dangers because it, it certainly has those. Um, but in terms of, you know, uh, serious long-term effects, um, they're not... Uh, quite as severe, although they can be. It depends on the obviously the extent of the addiction and the amount of use and that sort of thing. But where MDMA becomes problematic um, is uh, when it either has impurities with it, uh, or people take too much of it, and um, you know they they overdose and uh, have these terrible consequences that we've seen at uh, music festivals, for yeah. example, where. You'll recall the uh, inquiry that, or the inquest that the coroner had last year yeah. into uh, six tragic music festival deaths. Um, uh, you know, the, the findings there were um, very concerning. And um, the coroner uh, also made a number of recommendations um, 
uh, not dissimilar to some of the conclusions that my inquiry came to as well. That's really interesting, uh, and I'm keen to touch on that as well. So MDMA is is a, a type of amphetamine, is that correct? Yes, it is. It's okay. an amphetamine-type stimulant, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it, the process that you went through with this inquiry, you sort of touched on it earlier, so you were out there in the grassroots, you were talking to people, whether they were in jail, uh, addicts, mm. family members, um, people of all all walks of life to really understand the true effect and the impact that this is having Mm. how long how long did the inquiry go for and what what else was there in the process that that you undertook uh it was 14 months um that uh, the inquiry went for and um we uh had a number of um visits to various uh, places. We went and looked at a number of uh, drug rehabilitation programs, um, such as, for example, Odyssey House, had a very close look at um, how these uh, are working. Um, We went to uh, the compulsory drug and alcohol treatment program um, uh, attached to North Shore Hospital had a very uh, interesting presentation from uh, people there. Um, And uh, we did a lot of uh, visits of, you know, that type of thing. We went to the drug court. We spent a a good day uh, watching the drug court go through its list and uh, seeing the remarkable um, and wonderful job that uh, Judge Roger Dive and his team do Uh, in the drug court, and one of our recommendations was that that uh, uh, drug court idea be further expanded in New South Wales. But look, we also um, did a lot of research. I had, um, as I mentioned before, this team of fantastic uh, and able researchers who um, looked at all the literature in Australia and uh, overseas. Um, the academic literature, et cetera, um, on um, you know, drug addiction, solutions to it, uh, notions of decriminalization, and all of those issues. The other thing uh, we did was we, we, we felt it very important to have um, a close engagement with uh, the Aboriginal uh, community. Yeah. And um, we had an, uh, an Indigenous sort of liaison committee that Um, with some very senior people on it, who uh, all Indigenous people who enabled us to uh, get in contact with people in local communities Mm. um, where uh, the ice issue was a problem. Um, And when we went to these uh, various regional hearings, we also made a point of having an Aboriginal roundtable, an Indigenous roundtable, where we spoke with many Um, uh, Aboriginal uh, persons who um, were running NGOs and running um, enterprises to try and address uh, the drug problem. And we had many uh, helpful insights uh, from those uh, roundtables. We had a youth roundtable, which um, uh, where we invited a number of um, young people um, who had views on uh, uh, drug use and uh, uh, music festivals, for example. Yeah. So we listened very closely to the voice of youth. Um, we listened to, um, uh, we, we had an education roundtable where we spoke to representatives from both the public and uh, the private and the Catholic school systems, um, which was very interesting. Um, we had a decriminalization roundtable where we had a number of leading policy experts and uh, you know lawyers and others who know a lot about that area where we debated and tossed around all sorts of ideas about uh, the pros and cons of uh, decriminalization so look we we cast a very wide net um, yeah. and i think anyone who looks at this report which is some 1,200 pages over four volumes, um, will realise the depth of research that's gone into it. And, and it's, it's evidence-based. It's, it's, you know, not just 
um, random ideas. It's all evidence-based after many, many months of very hard work. Certainly sounds uh, like it was highly inclusive and uh, and it's great to see special attention taken for you know the indigenous and, and the youth as well because uh, it's it's really important to get their their input on this, which sounds like you certainly yeah. did and and certainly yeah. seems like you're very proud of what was undertaken and and the outcome that that you've reached. As we look to New South Wales, um, you mentioned the other day, uh, not uh, we haven't had New South Wales has had no formal drug policy for over a decade, uh, and you mentioned yeah. that. Bob Hawke was the first driver of this when his daughter uh, was an addict to heroin, I believed. Uh, mm. And then also Bob Carr, whose brother suffered as well. Yes. Uh, yes. Tell us the the hope of of this of, of this report. Mm. Is this stimulating some policy change as we move into uh, you know the next phase of government? Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I really, really hope so, Sam. Um, the conclusion that um, my commission came to and, and that I came to was that this um, tired, um, you know, law and order, war on drugs approach um, just hasn't worked. I mean, you look at any of the trends in drug use, um, uh, in recent times, uh, it's it, it's just not getting any better. I mean, sometimes the you know the the drug of choice or preferred or most commonly used drug might change from time to time over time, but the overall uh, use um, just continues uh, to grow. And um, the war on drugs, where you know you just prosecute users and possessors and um, it's it's not the way to go. Um, I think uh, it's interesting, and I mentioned at the conference the other day, uh, the the passion that I think Bob Hawke and and also Bob Carr later um, brought to the issue was born of having had personal experience with a family member um, going through it, and I think that kind of light bulb that goes on when you actually experience it through a loved one um, is a driver of passion. And, you know, I, 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 I'm not suggesting or, or, or wishing at all that um, politicians would have to go through that difficult experience, but it's important to be aware of the voice of yeah. uh, people with lived experience. Yeah, um, and and that's something that we've certainly tried to capture in the report, um, both by hearing from uh, those people and also by going to the regions and seeing, you know, where the pain is on the ground and 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 where the needs are. Um, so look, as as far as where it will all lead, I, it it is my great hope. It's it's probably the, you know, the hope of my. Uh, entire career, really, yeah. um, that this thing achieves um, some positive and real reform, not just, you know, puttying up a few uh, bits of broken uh, framework, but actually deep and meaningful reform that will address these issues and set us on the right track. And I've made the point that our current policies uh, are well, firstly, New South Wales at the moment doesn't have a formal drug policy. It hasn't had one, believe it or not, for 10 years. Um, we did have one after Bob Carr's drug summit. There was a very powerful policy that lasted for about uh, 10 years or so. But we haven't had one for a decade. And I think uh, we just sort of uh, maybe rested on our laurels for too long. And, yeah. and let let things uh, ride. Meanwhile, the ATS amphetamine problem started to grow, and uh, we weren't equipped with adequate policies to to deal with it. So um, I'm I'm earnest my earnest hope that something will will come of the recommendations of this report. Tell us about there's a recommendation. I mean, you were talking about with which is. Um, 
criminalizing the use of illicit drugs makes drug users labeled criminals before people and and the importance of seeing the people rather than them as a problem uh yeah tell us tell us about that because it's it's an important distinction to make Look, absolutely. And, and that was a quote from um, a Dr. Jonathan Brett, who's an addiction specialist at St. Vincent's Hospital. And um, I use that because it very much um, captures um, what uh, we found uh, during the inquiry, um, uh, which is, um, look, it's very easy to um, bat away the responsibility of helping these people by branding them as criminals. Uh, criminals, mm. and you know, I think if uh, it, it makes it easy to say, why should we spend taxpayer dollars on on criminals? But if you look at um, most people who use drugs, and I'm not talking about traffickers, I'm not talking about you know, people who uh, kill or rape or murder under the influence of, mm. um, of a drug. But just your, your user who possesses drugs, um, they need to be offered as many opportunities as possible to come forward and seek help with their addiction um, rather than being tainted as, as criminals, um, rather than uh, through fear of uh, becoming um, branded as criminals, refusing or failing to come forward. You know, they're, they're afraid to talk to their GPs about it. They're afraid to talk to their families about it, their loved ones. They don't find out about it until uh, something bad happens. So, uh, you know, I think that whole um, approach to seeing the person um, seeing it as a health problem rather than a criminal justice problem for your simple use and possession of drugs yeah. is absolutely key. It's a, it's a, it's a profoundly important uh, change in, in how we need to uh, look at this issue. And, and I hasten to add that um, if we take that approach and if we uh, don't criminalise simple users and possessors, that doesn't mean we're legalizing the drugs. And it doesn't mean that we're giving free reign to traffickers or free reign to um, people to go and take drugs and then commit a crime. That Because they they will still be prosecuted with the full force of the law. No different to people that are doing it with, and with alcohol in their system, I assume. Ex exactly. Yeah. Exactly so. It, mate, it's really, I mean, it's really interesting. Is that one of the key recommendations that the report made about decriminalizing possession of personal uh, use? Yes, that, that's, that's correct, Sam. And um, we put it in, in the alternative. Um, there's a lot of confusion about terminology um, and, you know, what decriminalization means and doesn't mean. So I might just take a minute to briefly explain. Um, they're really, um, there's decriminalization, uh, which removes the ability to prosecute for simple use and possession of drugs. Um, now, that, that doesn't include possessing a large amount that is enough to deem you to be a supplier. It's just, you know, your personal use amount of drugs. Um, so if you remove the ability of the state to prosecute, um, that's decriminalization. Um, there's also a thing that some people call a, a variety of decriminalization, but is properly called depenalization, yeah. where you leave the ability of the state to prosecute, but you choose not to prosecute until um, other things have been tried. So those other things would be, for example, a referral to a health intervention. Um, uh, maybe um, uh, if that isn't helpful, a fine or maybe a caution or a warning. Um, and there are different schemes and different ways of um, putting this into effect. But um, the alternative recommendation to decriminalization that we made was effectively depenalization, which is 
to allow uh, a person to have, uh, if you like, three strikes, as it were. I think this is what's being floated by the Attorney General at the moment. Okay. Um, where uh, they're referred to uh, a uh, help, an appropriate health intervention. We weren't recommending fines, um, uh, but that does seem to be something that um, the Attorney General is considering at the moment or has had before Cabinet. I'm only saying that from what I've read in, yeah. in the press in the last few days because I haven't seen the actual proposal itself, but it's clearly based on this uh second recommendation of ours or our alternative recommendation. Um, and we felt that um, each of the three chances, if you like, that a person had should be dealt with by referrals to an appropriate health intervention. Um, not necessarily compulsory, but, um, you know, the design of that needs to be worked out and we've left that to the powers that be to decide the best form that that should take. Um, but the point of depenalization is that prosecution would only be, uh, if you like, the last resort after these other uh, opportunities had been taken. And the idea is to get people into the help that they need, treat it as a health problem, um, uh, and maybe leave prosecution as a as a residual possibility for the absolutely recalcitrant people who are just, um, you know, yeah, uh, going nowhere with it. And is the depenalization, is that, are you referring to all drugs or are you referring to uh, methamphetamines? Yes. We talk, we, no, all drugs. All drugs. All drugs. Okay. Yes. And, and we've had a proof of concept with this, haven't we? There's another country that is doing this and has done for some time. Yes, look, in, in, in fact, um, this sort of uh, referral to an uh, appropriate health intervention rather than prosecuting or before prosecuting um, uh, has been uh, brought in in, in Australia. It's, 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 uh, this type of scheme is actually in existence in every other state except Queensland. Um, so it's not you know, like a really radical idea. Um, but it's just, I think people uh, become, uh, they have this kind of visceral response to the idea of, oh, gosh, we're going soft on drugs, you know. Um, and then they they don't read the detail. Um, mm. They don't look at the, uh, you know, evidence and the facts behind the report. They just um, immediately adopt an you know an ideology sort of stance um, which which I think is problematic and I think that's been part of the problem with the current debate that seems to be raging um, in the press and other quarters in New South Wales at the moment yeah. because the cabinet apparently is considering this proposal even as we speak and um, according to the press they're reconvening on the uh, 14th of December to discuss it further. And um, just from reading the papers, it seems that there has been quite a bit of misunderstanding about um, what are what the recommendations are. And, and all I can say uh, to the listeners is that it's not um, radical, um, and it's it's really a, a modest reform in my my view. Yeah. Well, I I think uh, was it you had some stats uh, about wastewater testing as well. Was that was that yeah. regarding Australia-wide, or was that by the state? So about the results. Uh, that's of that. both. It's it's the the um, uh, Australian Criminal Intelligence uh, uh, Commission um, has this uh, annual wastewater report, um, and there are a number of testing sites around the country. Um, there. The sites are kept secret for obvious reasons. They obviously don't want to impair the integrity of their sampling and that sort of thing. But my understanding from their reports is that um, they can cover more than half of uh, the population, the wastewater of more than half of the country's population, the, the entire country. I think the last report this year, 2020, was 58% 
of um, the wastewater. And they, they, they don't do it every day all year. It's just a, a period of days that they do, um, I think, a yeah. couple of times a year. But it gives a very good um, data sample of what's going through the wastewater. And they can measure the metabolites of drugs, um, not just amphetamines but or crystal methamphetamine, but, you know, cocaine and cannabis and so on. And it makes very interesting reading to see how much um, metabolite of all these different drugs is in the wastewater. And they, so they can, they can uh, tell us how much uh, there is, for example, in the regions compared to in the cities um, and what the trends have been over time. Um, and the trends since they commenced wastewater testing in 2000. 16 has, has been a, um, a an upward rise, generally speaking, um, in uh, amphetamine type stimulants. And um, the uh, advent of COVID has made a slight change to that. Um, it's shown a decrease, I think, in the use of crystal methamphetamine in uh, city areas, but an increase in rural areas. Um, it's also shown an increase in cities of cocaine use um, since COVID. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. The, the, the conclusion they came to was that really uh, COVID hadn't made a major impact in terms of supply, that the, you know, organised crime and uh, traffickers are still, um, still plotting on and resilient to even COVID-19. Wow. Um, so it's it's well worth looking at uh, those reports. Um, they're available on the uh, internet. Yeah, and the the crystal meth was second, I think, wasn't it? Was that right? To alcohol? Uh, no, in terms of in terms of volume, uh, just pure weight of uh, the stuff that's in the wastewater, it was by far and away the most common. Um, uh, and I think I, that's of the. Um, I think that excludes cannabis, but every okay. yes. So, it, but but by far and away above everything else, it was uh, the most prevalent. Dan, if we talk about uh, pilot tests at risky venues uh, and substance testing services, was yeah. this a recommendation of the report to do um, pill testing and other testing at at risky venues? Is that is that something that you recommended? Yes. Yes. Um, <clears throat> The I mentioned the uh, coronial inquiry into the music festival deaths yeah. last year, and uh, the coroner uh, strongly recommended um, that there be a pilot of uh, a pill testing um, uh, set up at a music festival. Um, and she had heard uh, evidence from ex many experts on this issue and looked very closely at the evidence, as did my inquiry. And uh, I came to the same conclusion. Uh, in fact, I went a little bit further than that because I felt the evidence before our inquiry um, was uh, even every bit as compelling, if not more so, um, and came to the conclusion that uh, we should not just have a pilot but that we should go ahead now and introduce a statewide testing service that would be um, a service that anyone could go to uh, with a substance that they thought might be an illicit drug and have it analysed. Um, and that would include, you know, possible uh, intending users. It might include concerned family members who might have found, you know, uh, something in a, a drawer at home, yeah. Um, uh, or and and these um, centres would also, through the testing that they did, they'd be able to inform law enforcement as to what was in the market, um, because a lot of these uh, drugs contain impurities. Yeah. A lot of them, um, apart and impurities can be very dangerous. Some of them are uh, cut with. Uh, substances that are, you know, uh, potentially lethal. And some of these substances have very high purity uh, so that people don't realise uh, the dose that they're taking. 
and that can kill people as well. So, you know, if there's a high purity pill uh, that's out there, be it MDMA or something else, um, people need to know that. They need yeah. to know that if, you know, the pill that has a picture of Donald Trump on it, mm. um, and there, there are such M MDMA pills, um, or, you know, a Superman pill, yeah. um, which is another example of one that was some years ago found to be lethal, um, or one particular batch of it in Europe was found to be lethal, um, then, you know, that, that information needs to get out there. And unless pills and substances are being tested regularly, um, if they're only being tested when police apprehend someone and then decide to prosecute them and for forensic reasons have to test the drug for the prosecution purposes, um, then we're not going to get a, a fair reading of what's out there. Um, I think it's an important uh, service to the community. I think it's an important safeguard for our young people. So we we recommended, a, and it also helps law enforcement. But we recommended this as a uh, as a fixed site uh, proposal uh, without a pilot. Just go ahead and do it. The evidence is there. Yeah. And as an offshoot of that, we recommended that there should be a pilot of that statewide. Um, testing service um, going to a risky venue such as a music festival gotcha. and testing it at that, um, having a pilot at that. Um, but, but by saying risky venues, it's acknowledging also that, you know, nightclubs and other venues can be risky. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we need, we, we need to be realistic about what's really happening out there and, and harm reduction is one of the key pillars of the national drug strategy. And this is a harm reduction measure that yes. could be very effective. Dan, I, I got to speak, I got to speak to uh, a lovely bloke, Rodney Bridge, a few weeks ago, uh, who's who started side effect over in Perth uh, as a result of his son taking his own life from using uh, a synthetic drug. And, yeah. and he, he was a, on a campaign with 60 minutes to shut down some of these research medical chemicals or medical research chemicals i think maybe they're called that are being produced or being produced in uh in factories over in china and put into these synthetic drugs and i asked him about this pill testing and stuff like that but he was sort of saying that there's like 400 of these medical research chemicals that they're putting into these things and he said that unless you you're testing for each one it's hard to know, and I don't know how this pill testing works, but does it, does it tell you exactly the chemicals that are in the pills or do you actually need to specifically target the testing of the drugs for each chemical to know what's in it? Does that make sense? Because he's like, unless you're testing for these 400 different chemicals, one of which killed his son, you, it wouldn't, you wouldn't actually know what was in them. Yeah, look, uh, that's true. The the um, uh, so there might be some challenges with that. Yeah, a lot of it depends on the technology you're using. Um, obviously, mass spectrometry is sort of the the gold standard, and and this is one of the reasons why we recommended a fixed site statewide testing service because that would uh, such a service more um, comprehensive could, is it. Could use the state-of-the-art testing that would okay. show you exactly what, what was, was in the substance being tested. Okay. Um, the one of the uh, things that uh, testing at a site such as music festivals um, is that uh, at the moment they've been using um, infrared spectrometry, um, and uh, it's it's not bad. Um, uh, and it 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 um, can test many many substances, but it's not as perfect uh, in telling you exactly what's there. They they can give you some idea of uh, purity, but it's not as good. And it'll okay. mainly tell you if the um, the drug that you think is in the pill is actually in the pill. 
but it won't always pick up impurities if they're below a certain um, concentration in, okay. in the pill. Um, but uh, those testing methods are um, uh, improving all the time. Okay. And in fact, I know uh, at the recent, the last time they had a, uh, a pill testing pilot in, at uh, the Groove and the Moo Festival in the ACT, <laughs> that they had uh, brought in from uh, the US a portable mass spectrometer um, that they were going to use. And I saw this, uh, I went to a demonstration and I saw this mass spectrometer at the uh, pill testing tent at the, uh, yeah. that they were using at the uh, Groove and the Move Festival. And it was very compact. And uh, the problem was though that just before the pilot or either in the very early stages of the pilot, it, it broke down. There were some technical oh, problems no. with it, so they weren't able to use it. Oh, no. um, but those sorts of technologies are improving all the time. Yeah. Um, so Just one to... would expect that uh, good quality um, testing could be deployed even at music festivals. The, the other important thing about testing at festivals, and this is one of the key issues, is that it's the actual health intervention, the... Um, uh, the intervention that the um, the peer workers or the the clinicians at the pill testing site give to the individual, and they they actually tell them about the risks of using drugs. They tell them about um, the risks of one drug interacting with another um, if they're taking more than one. Um, they um, encourage them to be intelligent and sensible about. Uh, whether they use drugs or not, um, yeah, and right. if they are determined to use them, how to use them safely. So, um, so there's some good education opportunities then around that. Yes, yes, and when I say use them safely, they make it a key part of what they tell people going to these testing uh, tents um, that um, they can't say that any drug use is safe and they have to understand that. But people coming through are told that, that, you know, no drug use is safe. But if you're absolutely determined anyway, yeah. despite what you're hearing, to use it, then there are safer ways to use it. It's the same with chemicals in the pills. I mean, I couldn't imagine many chemicals would be safe to put in your body. But, I mean, out of all the chemicals out there, maybe there are some that are safer than others obviously that's that's the yeah. the other yeah i think that's right and and but look just just uh the impression i had from our youth round table um at the inquiry and from other evidence that we heard was that many uh young people have no idea of the risks that they're taking yeah. They just don't understand the chemistry or the interaction or the risks inherent in, you know, dropping two pills in quick succession because you see a, um, a drug dog uh, up ahead. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there are real dangers in this. And, um, you know, a lot of our youth just don't understand this. I mean, the schools do um, the best they can, I suppose, but... You know, it's very hard to teach these things with, um, in a comprehensive way, in schools. Yeah. Um, so, you know, these these are important um, harm reduction proposals. Yeah, uh, and the, well, the other thing that I thought was interesting that Rob was saying was that if they go and get their pill tested and it's deemed to be not safe, uh, the chances of them throwing a fifty dollar pill in the bin and kissing it goodbye probably slim they're probably going to go out and try and sell it to some other poor bugger that'll take it and <laughs> and get the money well, back because fifty dollars is a lot to the kids so yeah, yeah. well look the, i think the experience <laughs> with a number of these uh pilots like in the act they've had two pilots at, uh, over two successive years at the groove and the moo festival yep. they found that um you know when they found dangerous um uh impurities in some of these pills uh, or substances that uh, they were thrown away you know the, okay, the people were told and they 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 were they said they would change their drug taking behavior as a result um, okay so you know lives were saved there's no question that lives were saved at those okay. festivals um, 
because they found, you know, some dangerous uh, impurities. Um, well, that's good. They took it away. Yes, uh, absolutely. And look, one of the other points I'd like to make is that um, there are these uh, drug testing kits you can buy at chemists. Um, and the evidence we heard from a toxicologist uh, was that those kits are actually potentially quite dangerous because they they basically work on a sort of color change uh, uh, chemical reaction when you put a bit of the drug um, with this uh, kiss, this uh, testing kit. Um, and it'll show a particular color, which you've then got to match against a color chart. So there's a potential for human error in that. And um, it'll tell you only really if the substance that you're hoping is in the drug is in it, but it won't tell you what else is in it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, these kits actually are, give a very false sense of security and they're potentially dangerous. But um, one of the things we heard from uh, David Caldicott, Dr. David Caldicott, is that um, many of these kits are sold, you know, so there's a real demand out there for uh, testing of these substances. And if we don't provide a proper safe uh, setup with proper equipment that will actually tell them what's really in the substance, they're going to go and use and buy these cheap and nasty kits at chemists, yeah. which um, are not going to be safe for them to use. Yeah. So, you know, it'll happen if we don't do it properly, it's going to happen improperly and that's going to cause more harm. Um, it makes complete sense. Dan, as we, one of the last questions I want to ask you is as we look to the future, what's, what are you hoping that's going to be adopted and what's, what could be the fear if it's not, not done um, and not made a priority to try and get a handle on this? Yeah. Well, um, Look, it would be sad that um, this this inquiry, I, I believe, was really a, a, a once in a generation opportunity to really uh, get ahead of the curve again. We've fallen badly behind the curve and we need to get ahead of it. Um, we were once a very proud state in terms of our uh, advanced uh, thinking with um drug policy, and we've really fallen behind. So I would like to see this opportunity uh, taken um, uh, and not uh, let, uh, let go. I think we've got to grasp the nettle. Now, there are 109 recommendations um, of various kinds. Um, one of the most important things we need to do is to um, spend more resources on uh, making drug and alcohol treatment, and I should probably restrict this. Um, uh, no, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with that. Drug and alcohol treatment more readily available. Um, rehabilitation and detox facilities are struggling. The NGO sector that runs these, many of these are really doing it tough. They, they have um, huge demand for their services, uh, which creates a long waiting list and with people who have drug addiction of course as, as many people would know that light bulb moment when they finally decide they are ready to seek help it's terribly important that that opportunity be available to them then and there because if the window of opportunity is lost yeah. then you know if they're told well we can't take you for another three months at this uh, rehab uh, they go back to using drugs. That often, it's, it's an often heard yeah. story time and again that we heard at the inquiry. Um, so the, the inquiry's recommendations are a package. Um, if we're going to depenalize, it's important that we also make sure that there are more resources for people to seek help. Um, we made some recommendations about uh, enabling general practitioners to have more skills and support in this area because they're a huge resource that could be um, uh, greatly enhanced by um, improving, for example, the rates that they can 
obtained from the uh, schedule of benefits under Medicare for attending to people with drug addictions and drug problems. And there are many other recommendations that need to be looked at. So I hope that as many uh, as possible are taken up. Yeah. Well, mate, it certainly sounds like you and the team did an amazing job with that. And and obviously, uh, I mean, it's it's becoming a real problem and hopefully we can get a handle on this and, and most of the recommendations do get taken up. And I'm looking forward to hearing the outcome of their meeting on the 14th uh, to see what comes of that. And no doubt you and the rest of the team are as well. Dan, are there any final thoughts you want to add uh, before we wrap it up? Is there anything else you want to mention? Uh, look, I, I think... Since you mentioned my team, I was going to mention them as well. Um, yeah. I, as I've said, they were just fantastic. And um, if any of them are listening, I would like to thank them again for the incredible hard work they put in and, and the support that they gave to me with this uh, really important um, uh, landmark inquiry that we were tasked uh, to do. Um, so, uh, no, I think those are um, the the final remarks I'd like to say, Sam, I do want to thank you for uh, taking the time to speak with me about this issue. And I hope this has been of interest to you and your listeners. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.